In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Rob and I are going to be talking about creators versus fans. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 418. Welcome to Startups for Respite, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Mike. And I'm Rob. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. What's going on this week, Rob? Things are good this week. Fall is in full effect as the leaves fall off the trees. We live near a lake and the, and the view of that gets better for us. So it's kind of definitely feeling the seasons change and kind of gearing up to to do more work in winter. You know, I really took I took late spring, summer, and, and early fall off. I've been off work uh, since I left Drip in, in April, so but been about six months. And now, you know, I'm kind of starting to ramp up a little bit on uh, on TinySeed, tinyseedfund.com, which is the accelerator that, you know, I, I mentioned on the show a few weeks back, and things are picking up and going, going really well with that. We're in, uh, you know, fundraising mode, in essence, and that's going, I will say, quite a bit better than I thought it would. And... It was the hypothesis is I think this is needed in our space. I think that that bootstrappers and people who want to you know kind of fundstrap things need some funding, a better funding source, and some guidance. And then that there will be people who are interested in supporting that, and you know based on our models, ma- making money obviously because it's a it's an investment. But you but you don't know right? It's a hypothesis when you start. And then the more that we've talked to people, it's like this is really interesting you know this is this is something that uh i I feel the momentum building as we speak and i'm i'm pretty excited about that it's exciting for me to be working on something new i haven't done anything new since starting drip you know which was 2012 right so it's fun to do that awesome on my end last month i had uh, started doing some paid advertising and through the one paid ad that i was doing i added about 600 email addresses to my mailing list and they're still kind of working their way through an email campaign that i have set up for them so i I have no idea what my uh, you know eventual conversion rate will be on them but it'll be interesting to kind of see how that all shakes out so i'm kind of looking at what other things i can do in november and then december and january etc so i'm kind of looking forward to the future but you know seem to have had some reasonable success so far with that. Sounds good. How are you feeling about uh, blue tech? Like, are you optimistic? Is it kind of, are you in a, in a, in a rut, you know, or in a valley right now? What's your sentiment? Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's hard to separate, I'll say the business side of things from the personal side of things. So like last week I had mentioned that I was diagnosed with sleep apnea and, you know, I got a CPAP machine and my sleep has started to get noticeably better already. And it's hard to say whether or not, like, I don't want to call it apathy, but it's just a, like general tiredness, like for the past, I don't know, it's it's been more than a year or so, but like general, just general exhaustion working on it. And it's not that I'm not excited to work on it or that I don't want to. It's just, it's hard to get, you know, things going or make good progress on it. But like with the sleep, like I, I feel more energetic just in general. So I'm thinking that that's actually probably, like I said, I'm trying to differentiate between is it just lack of utter lack of sleep or is it like how the product is going? And obviously, like there's a correlation between them. But, you know, at a a financial level, Blue Tick has kind of been meandering. It hasn't it doesn't have like a hockey stick growth. And it it just it goes up some months and it goes down some months. And it's just not where I want it to be. But it's also been really, really hard to make any substantial progress on it because of the lack of sleep. That's tough, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm looking at it saying, well, you know, if I can if I can actually start sleeping and get more productive days on a, a consistent basis, because like before I would have like maybe two or three out of a month, which is awful. Like you just you can't make progress like that. And this week alone, I've had like three. So, you know, I was like a 300% increase. But yeah, I'll, I'll see how it goes. And I think that I'll probably know more in a couple of months. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. It's always like I said last week, like it's tough to have that chronic stuff that you're you're fighting against. It's hard enough to start a company like this without also having to fight another battle on another front. You know, a colleague of mine said, he said, I can have a tumultuous work life if my personal life is calm and supportive, and I can have a tumultuous personal life if my if my work life, you know, is calm and supportive, but if both are in tumult at the same time, it's just too much, right? And that's when people melt out. That's when you either leave a job, you get a divorce, you, you know, bad things happen and you, and you have to make a change, you come to a breaking point. And so, you know, it sounds like you've had, you have the challenge on the business front and on the personal front. And it's like, it's not easy fighting it on, on both those battles, you know? Yeah. So like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm consciously optimistic at this point that like the sleep issues will be at least partially resolved. And then my expectation slash hope is that those will translate into more consistent progress on the blue tick side. So, and then we'll just see how it goes. Cause I mean, honestly, like even with sleep, it may not eventually work out. So I don't know. We'll see how it goes. So what are we talking about today? Well, I have a, a subscription to Medium and one of the articles that had... So you're the one. Yes, <laughs> I'm the one. You're the one person that subscribed to me. Did you just do it to get rid of the annoying pop-ups? Yeah, well, there were articles that I actually wanted to read. And the, you know, like, there's various authors who like, you know, I, I read a bunch of their stuff. And you know, it just kind of made sense. It was one of those things where I can pay the $50 a year or not. But if I don't, then there are certain articles like I'd go to click on them and it'd say, oh, you can't read this because you need a medium subscription. And yes, I know that there are ways around it. But I didn't really care. Like it's $50 a year. I'm totally cool with like helping to support those authors. Like that's just kind of my point of view on it. So it didn't bother me. It wasn't enough that like, I was like, oh, I don't want to pay this. And you know, they're dastardly or something like that. It's just like, yeah, whatever. It's not that big a deal to me. Yeah. I wouldn't do a workaround. If, if I believe in the content, I pay for the content. Like I, I think at this point in our careers, like we need to A, value creators and B, not be such cheap bastards that you're not going to pay somebody $4 a month to help support what's going on. Now, if it's a big corporation trying to take a bunch of money from me, then of course I'm going to fight that tooth and nail. But assuming that some of this is distributed to the writers themselves, right, the authors themselves, that's the point of it. I don't, I don't see a reason to try to do some lame work around. Yeah. And that was it. Like knowing that it was going to support those authors. And I will admit that like, you know, I used those workarounds early on because I was just like, well, is the content that's behind the paywall, is that the same or similar quality and everything else? Like, is it the same type of stuff or is it just like completely different? And it's the same type of stuff. It was just, you know, I wanted to read it based on what the headline was or what the contents, you know, like the first couple of paragraphs were. And I was like, oh, I actually want to read the rest of this. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's worked out. I totally, you know, renew my subscription when it comes up. But yeah, if you're interested in learning more about that, just go over to Medium and you start reading a few different things. And some of them are really interested in and some of them aren't. But I mean, you're kind of supporting, I think, all of the authors that you read their articles because I think that they track uh, like what you read and how much you read it. And they attribute the money that you pay on a monthly basis to whichever people that you read their content. Yeah. And it's tough because I, you know, when, when Medium came out, it's kind of like, wow, how are you going to do this at Williams? You know, you've obviously had success with Blogger and Twitter. 
but this seems like a real uh, tough gamble, but he raised a bunch of money, right? Buckets of it because he's at Williams and really hasn't found a, a business model that's made it work. And then when they went to paid and they started the ads and they started the pop-ups, it's like, it's predictable and it's irritatingly predictable, right? It's another Silicon Valley company that launches with no business model that in the end winds up pissing off or screwing their users. And that's frustrating to me. It's a similar thing to, I mean, I could throw out dozens of examples, but one that reminds me is uh, Outright, which was account, it is accounting software and it was free, right? And it's accounting software that's free. And I remember emailing the CEO, right? You know, when they launched, I said, how can this be free, you know? And he's like, well, we, we want it to be free for everyone. And we think that should just be table stakes. And then we're going to charge for like tax preparation and these other things. And that's going to make it work. Well, that, that was his line. But really what they were trying to do was get a bunch of users and then sell because they sold to GoDaddy and it's a product now. Like it's terrible. They haven't touched it. I used to use it. I think we used to use it for Academy stuff. We had to switch to zero. Like I had three, four accounts on Outright, and it's No, terrible. we still use it. Do we? <laughs> yeah, I, we still I use hate it. that program. And it used to be good, but they decided this Silicon Valley model of, we don't care about our users, we're going to launch, we need a bunch of free users, oh, look, here we have an exit. And that's that's the difference. That's, I don't disagree when people have an exit, right? I mean, I've sold companies, but it's like, do it in a way that you don't screw your, your employees, you screw your customers, you know, you screw your partners. Like, don't do that. Have some, have some something. I don't know if it's ethics or morals or, or it's just like, do the right thing by people, you know? And that's where I get irritated. So I'm not saying, no, I'm not saying medium has gone that far, right? But, but I am annoyed every time I go there and, and there's a, you know, some annoying pop-up, so. But I think that there's a correlation between the like Silicon Valley startups that, you know, you and I, we started this podcast kind of in direct opposition to those because they had this, as you said, it's predictable. Like this happens almost every time. Like they build a product, they don't really know who they're going after or who's going to buy it or who's, going to pay them money or how they're going to make money. And then they do a bunch of stuff. They get users. They use that to get to the next funding level. And eventually they turn around and bite the people who got them there. And whether that's because they sold the company to somebody else and they just say, okay, yep, it's not my problem anymore. Or they do things like put in annoying ads and pop-ups because they didn't have any business model to begin with. Or they're like Facebook and they start selling all your personal information. Like it's predictable like every single time. So Right. Or Twitter, who, remember, they just screwed every all the developers who were using their API at one point. Mm -hmm. Remember that? They're just suddenly like, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. Or Google, who used to uh, give us the best search results. And now the top five of any given search result are a bunch of ads that are, they say sponsored in small writing. But my my kids don't know that those are ads. Like my mom doesn't know those are ads. She thinks they're results. And Google was always against pay to rank. And that's exactly what they're doing now. So we've just named five companies who've all done this off the top of our heads we could probably name 50 more and shall we get back to the episode <laughs> sure <laughs> now that we're in our next episode of the rant the the actual the topic that we were going to be talking about today was this article that i found on medium which is called it's named the power struggle for dungeons and dragons soul and i thought it was interesting because i i read this article and it was all about how originally tsr was the company and gary gygax and you know his team built Dungeons and Dragons into what it was. They sold it to Wizards of the Coast in 97 and Wizards of the Coast has basically owned it ever since. And throughout that time, like they have done various things to promote the game, but at the same time, they own like the license to the rules, the content, all the stuff that they distribute. But Dungeons and Dragons has always been like this world that was created or this uh, style of gaming that was created. And then people build their own stuff and bring their own stuff to it. And so there's this really big 
do-it-yourself culture inside of Dungeons and Dragons. I would say there's a very strong analogy you can make between something like that, where you've got a platform and you have all these creators who are kind of adding on to it. And like the world of software where you have the Twitter API and then there's all these people that are saying, hey, I can use that to create this or I can do that. So they build on it and then the platform creator turns around and bites them. And in reading through this article, like the one thing that struck me was that the analogies are just so strong. Like the very first thing they said was like, oh, the Dungeons and Dragons rules tend to be complicated and software will help you avoid that minutiae. So software developers came in and started saying like, hey, I'm going to build this tool for the game and distribute it. And Wizards of the Coast said, well, yeah, here's an open gaming license. And they did, created this back in the year 2000. And they basically licensed some of their content to be distributed within those tools. And the problem is it wasn't all of it. Yeah, that's right. It was the gaming engine. And, and to be honest, in 2000, that was revolutionary. So it was the third edition of Dungeons and Dragons. It was the the rules engine itself, right? But you couldn't take like their proprietary monsters or their proprietary spell names or there's a bunch of stuff they they kept behind but man it that sparked a huge kind of revolution in terms of all these games you used to say all right i want to write i want to build my own role-playing game and a bunch of people want to do that you have to come up with your, all your own game mechanics right i can't use the 3d6 or the, the you know the 1 to 18 i guess it's 3 to 18 ability scores strength intelligence wisdom constitution you know the ones that dungeons and dragons uses because they're kind of they're copyrighted and and they're protected and they opened that up which now 18 years later it seems like oh yeah well of course they should have done that but no one had done that before i mean there's always been massive kind of infighting even within the creators themselves like gary gygax you know, kind of co-created D&D with this guy, Dave Arneson. Dave Arneson sued him every other year for like five years in a row about who owned what. And it was just, just super unclear. There were, It was just riddled with lawsuits and has been from the start. Yeah. And if you, if you go back and look at the history of it a little bit in terms of like the what the open gaming license is, I'll actually add this link into the show notes, but they have things in here like, what do you mean by free in terms of the open gaming license? And they actually talk about the concept of free as in beer. Which is just, it's fascinating that there's that, they borrowed a lot from open source licenses because they said like with some of the text of their manuals, you could take that and put it directly in. And normally that would be a copyright violation. And they said, no, like this, these sections of the manuals, you can copy word for word and distribute them, but these other things you can't. So they restricted certain pieces of it, but not all of it. The vast majority of it, you can do whatever you want with and republish it. But then there's small sections of it that are, that are actually important sections that you can't do anything with. And it's almost like an API where you've got access to a lot of things, but there's certain things they hold back because they want to basically be in control of them. And it's, you know, it's really not any different than like Twitter saying, okay, you can have this API, but we're not going to give you the ability to create polls via the API. We, only we can do that. Uh, this, is, this is a tough one. Where are we headed with this? Because I can get into why I believe if I was Wizards of the Coast, why I would hold some stuff back because it's their whole business model, right? They can't, their business model is selling content. It's selling a game engine and it's selling content around that game engine, right? Adventures and then expansions to the to the game mechanics, new classes, new spells, all that stuff. So they hold all of that back because if they give that all away, that's their business. You know what I mean? So are we arguing about that? Or are we going to not arguing? Are we going to debate that part or are we headed in a different direction with this? 
Well, I think it's a, it's just an interesting question of what, as a creator of the platform, are you holding back from your customers or users versus what they're allowed to do with it? Because like the the things that they hold back, for example, you can play the game without them. It's just that they're the I'll say the popular pieces of it that people want to use, like certain sub races or. Or, or what have you. And I just find that it's, I think this is going to be more of a, a discussion about like, how do you treat your users for one, but like Wizards of the Coast offered their own set of tools in a marketplace called D&D Beyond. And they allow people to distribute their own content through it, but they also compete with them at the same time. So do you trust the, I'll say the platform vendor? Like if you put something out on Apple's ecosystem, are you guaranteed that they're not going to compete against you? And of course the answer to that is no, like they can create something, they can create anything they want. And so could Microsoft or Twitter or what have you, but certain companies are more likely to, I'll say, leave pieces of the business alone because they know that they want third-party vendors to come in and develop on their platform and they don't want to squash them. They want to kind of foster that because as soon as they start squashing these smaller vendors, people are going to take notice and say, well, if you're going to build exactly what we put on your platform and developed and you see that it's successful, you create your own version of it and then bundle it. You're back in the situation of like, you know, Microsoft being threatened to be broken up into four different business units back in 2000 because they're abusing their monopoly position of the just distribution engine. Yeah. And, you know, Wizards of the Coast, I mean, when I look at it, the amount of stuff they're giving away is is shocking. The stuff they give away on D&D, it's letter D, letter N, letter D, D-N-D, beyond.com. They have a free plan. That's all I have. I can pretty much play the game with all that. I mean, you can download the, the starter rulebook and all the materials for free as PDFs legally off of their site. Now, I paid whatever it is, 14 bucks or 15 bucks for it on Amazon, the Dungeons & Dragons starter set for 5th edition, because I wanted the print versions of it. I didn't want to print it all out and always be trying to flip around through it on my iPad. But you could get this for free. And then even like the expanded spells and expanded monsters are all in D&D Beyond in electronic format for free, and it's fully searchable. So it, in my opinion, they have done a great job of like expanding the free bubble, you know, expanding the free circle because the free circle was almost non-existent 10 or 15 years ago. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. But as a result, they then have to have other things around it that they can they can add to that. For a casual gamer, I mean, my son and I are casual D&D fans. We, we play it. We like it. But we're not buying all the supplements and all the extra stuff because we don't have time to to consume all of that. For the casual gamer, it's great. And I am spending, you know, some money on, you know, we buy miniatures and we buy other stuff that I think helps the ecosystem. But if you're intense about it, you know, and if you are a hardcore gamer and a hardcore Dungeons & Dragons player, then you're going to buy that expansion stuff. And that's the gamble Wizards had to take because to me, it's a gamble. You know, can you make up the lost revenue by giving this other stuff away with, you know, the expectation that people are going to buy kind of buy the other stuff you put out. And I think that's part of what we're talking about here, right? Is if, you, if you're if you building on someone else's platform, you're taking a gamble. And if you build a platform, how much of it can you release for free without cannibalizing your business model? Right. And one of the things that I find interesting is that, like, there's nothing that I've found that is, I'll say, a concession for purchasing their content in another form, for example. So, like, if you buy some of the books themselves, 
you can't then like plug in a license key or anything like that into their online system that provides you access to the things that you to the content that you already bought. But you bought a physical copy. You're just saying they don't give you the digital copy free with the physical. Is that what you're saying? Right. Yeah. I mean, they could do that if they want. It's a nice perk, but I don't feel like they're required to do that. Do you? I, I don't, but if you're paying a subscription for it, which is like there's there's the free plan and then there's the paid plan, but the paid plan doesn't give you the access to the things that you already purchased in physical form. That's my point. So it's like they're charging you a subscription fee to like allow you more things inside of the software. And, and it's like you can create more characters, for example. But they don't also give you – like if you want to see a monster, a particular monster that's in a book you already purchased, you can't have access to that. You have to buy the digital copy of the book, which is another 30 to $50 or whatever. So you're basically paying for it twice. Well, but if you want it in digital format, then don't buy the physical one. Like, that's what I would say. You know, it's like you have your, your subscription is, for, is it's $3 a month, right? Or $5 a month. It's like very, it's not expensive. And that gives you capabilities of the software itself. But then there are these tomes that they spend thousands and tens of thousands of person hours developing with art and all this stuff. It's expensive to write that stuff. So if they wanted to give that away as an all access pass, to me, that's another tier altogether. And my guess is someday they might do that. You know, the Kindle Unlimited or Comixology Unlimited, where you can just pay five bucks or 10 bucks a month and you get access to not everything in the Kindle store, you know, but you get access to the ones that people make available. Like they could do that. And then it's a content subscription. I, I think that the subscription you have with D&D Beyond is more about the capabilities of the software, isn't it? No, like you can go in there. If you go in and you log in and you say, okay, let me take a look at the monsters. There's like official monsters and stuff like that. You go to click on some of them and it says, oh, you have to purchase the monster manual in order to see this. It's like, well, I have a physical copy of it. I really, I already purchased it. You're just allowing me to see it now inside of the software. Do you see what I'm saying? Like you've yeah, already purchased the content. You've purchased it in paper format though. You've purchased it in a different I, format. And I don't, it's not their obligation to give it to you in all 17 formats that exist. Should, should you get a PDF, an EPUB, a Kindle version when you buy the paper copy? I don't think that, that they need to do that. Uh, they can. I'm not, I'm not saying that they do. Uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I hear you. I, I completely agree with what you're saying. But the, the problem that they've, uh, I'll say, created is that they, they started publishing these, these things like two years before, two or three years before they came out with their online version. And they, that's a, so that's a problem that they'd like basically just looked at and said, yeah, we're not going to deal with this at all. Like the whole article is basically about, one, them basically pissing off their, their fan base because of that. Because these people have invested three, four, five hundred dollars into buying the books, and it's like, oh well, yes, you could. And then Wizard of the Coast comes along and says, hey, use our online software, and you can't use things that other people have developed because it has like the copyrighted material in it. Like you can't use those tools. So it's like, how do you like how do you use software to basically like just search for stuff, for example, like something simple like that? And they're like, yeah, you can't do that. And then they compete with you side by side. And they take 30% of whatever it is. Like, so you can use some of their source material, publish it on their marketplace, and they will take 30% of it. Sure. It's an app store model. Sure. Right. But they compete with you. You're actually competing with them, if you think about it. They own the license. They own the marketplace. They could just say, no user-generated content. Go use, what are they, I forget, our drive through RPG, and there's all these other peripheral marketplaces. They've made the choice to let people publish their stuff in, to let other people compete with them. You don't have to put your stuff on there, right? 
No, you don't. But there's two different licenses you can choose from when you decide to create something in their world. And one of them is the open gaming license. The other one is the D&D Beyond license. The D&D Beyond license lets you use things from their world, but you can only publish it in D&D Beyond. If you use the open gaming license, you have to publish it elsewhere. It's not even allowed in D&D Beyond. So they've got this split license system that they think seems to have solved the problem, but it doesn't solve every problem, of course. And like I said, it kind of comes down to what is the vendor doing that you are, are not going to be able to work around? What are things are they doing that are not fair to you as a creator on that platform? You know, what are they not allowing you to do? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think, yeah, let's get back to the point because we've we've kind of dug through this, but like, let's bring this around to, to software. Like how, you know, how does this apply? Where are we going with this in terms of, of startups? Yeah. So as I said, there's a lot of analogies between this particular situation and software where, as I said, like Twitter's cracking down on their API right now. And I, and I get in certain cases, you have to do that to prevent abuse. And right now, Twitter's cracking down a lot on apps that are, are bot related because they don't want tons of bots on their platform. They want people. And then there's other similar situations where like you've got WordPress plugins, for example, or Microsoft Office add-ins or Gmail plugins. Like you are very much reliant on upon the vendors, I'll say good graces to allow you to continue doing that. And are they going to build a product that does the same thing as yours? You know, TweetDeck, for example, competes with other Twitter automation products. Stripe is starting to offer in-app dashboards. And, you know, that competes with things like bare metrics and profit. Well, like I think it's a, I'll say a cautionary tale of be careful what you wish for in terms of a marketplace because you might get it. Yeah, that's right. I think it's very difficult the platform is viewed as this holy grail. If you can build a platform everybody else is building on, then you'll make a lot of money. And that's something a lot of Silicon Valley companies strive for. It is also a headache. It is, a, it is hard to manage because once you have a platform people are building on, those creators, well, they've spent money and, and they, they have a right to you know, expect that you're not going to turn around and screw them. And sometimes for the greater business, you make the decision to turn around and screw them. And that sucks. I feel like there's, I see both sides of it. Like when I look at, at what Wizards is doing, you know, with, with D&D Beyond, I think, I think overall they are pushing forward and they are doing the best they can. I don't think they're out to screw people. I do think that the, the licensing stuff is a challenge and I don't think there's anything they can do to not piss at least somebody off, right? When you have tens of thousands of people dealing with or creating or whatever, someone's going to be upset about something. So I'm, I'm not saying no one should be upset. But then on the flip side, when you look at Twitter uh, and Facebook and some, you know, Google, some of the other things we mentioned, they have done things that I feel like are, I don't know, downright evil in terms of the, the sense of don't be evil, you know, that they've really just purely to grow their own bottom line and, and keep shareholders happy, do things to their ecosystem that frankly they said they wouldn't do or they implied they wouldn't do. And then they turn around and screw a lot of people and they put people out of business. They do real damage. And so I see both sides of it. I think, I think sometimes the creators and the builders on these platforms get a little too whiny about it or a little too entitled of like, well, wizard shouldn't be able to do this. And it's like, I, I don't know. I don't necessarily agree with some of that, but I also see the other side of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like they're entitled to do whatever they want, but at the same time, you kind of have to respect that like the position you're in is because of the 
people that you've kind of invited to use the platform. I think what's a little irksome about it is it's like they don't they aren't real clear about like what the future holds. It's you know when you've got this black box of how it operates and what the future roadmap for it looks like, it's hard to make your own decisions about what to do with your business. So if you're a creator and you're putting things out there and you're trying to build a business from it and they're not real clear about what their intentions are for the future, it makes it hard for you to make decisions. And ultimately, like the fate of your business to some extent is in their hands. Like they can come out of left field and kill you at any time, but there's, and there's very little that you can do to stop it. You can complain, but you know, that may only go so far. And the bigger problem is that you don't have a good understanding of what's going on inside the company. You can't predict the future or or tell when their business is suffering from the outside. And they could be put in a position where they have to make tough choices that are going to hurt you in order to just either, you know, become profitable or simply to stay in business. And sometimes their hands are tied as well. Yeah, no, that's a good point is as soon as I hear about typically, I keep saying the Silicon Valley startup, I'm not trying to be, you know, generic and paint everybody with a brush, but it does tend to be these heavily funded startups that are clawing after market share and, and just burning through cash. When I hear one of them is having financial difficulties, either just rumored or their public company. And so you know that they're missing earnings like Twitter has been and Yahoo was and, you know, we hear these companies in trouble. As soon as I hear that, I think to myself, they're going to scratch claw and screw everyone they can, including their users, including their customers, including their partners, in order to somehow turn this around like they're doing it for the survival. So once I hear that, I'm always like backing away, like, okay, I'm going to be using this tool less. I'm just kind of waiting for them to, to turn around and kind of, you know, make decisions that are going to be negative for, for everyone else's experience. This is the hard part about building on someone else's platform. Remember, remember when Facebook, the games came out, Facebook apps, I guess, and then there were all these games like, uh, what was the Farmville, right? Yep, Farmville, Candy, Candy Crush. <laughs> like Farmville just got huge instantly, and it was like, oh my gosh, that the company that built that, this is amazing. And I remember thinking, this isn't lasting. Facebook isn't going to let it last, and then they didn't remember. And then they they tweaked the algorithm on the uh, what is it, the news feed, and all these companies went from whatever it was down to you know ten percent of their revenue overnight, and that's it. And and you, you fall as quickly as as you go up. It's not. I don't, I don't view that as a sustainable business. I mean, it's it's really, really hard. I can think of very few platforms that you can build your business on and count that it's not going to change and screw you in the next two years. You know, it's just kind of been, especially if they're heavily funded and they don't, don't have their revenue model worked out yet and they eventually want to go public. Eventually, they're just going to figure out a way to take more money from you. You won't have a choice or to just build the same functionality you've built and, and usurp you and you won't have a choice. And so again, building on someone else's platform is not something you shouldn't do, but know that you're going to get screwed at some point and figure out what your exit strategy is before that happens. That's how I would approach it. So you're saying get out no matter what quickly, as quickly as possible. My personal thing, if I were to build on the next Facebook or Twitter or you know even Amazon, like people launching Amazon, uh, you know, launching their e-commerce shops on Amazon, I know they can get traction fast. But have you seen how many how many like Amazon private label things there are now? Like I used to buy Duracell and, and Energizer batteries on Amazon. Now they have Amazon Basics. They're cheaper. They arrive, I think they arrive the same day here in Minneapolis if I order them. Like luggage. I almost bought an Amazon Basics luggage because it was cheaper. It was nice. It was highly rated. Like they are basically looking at all these categories and they're just figuring out a way to basically screw their vendors. So I'm, again, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But if you get in and you get traction count that that's not going to last. That's not a 10-year business. There's no chance Amazon will let you 
take that kind of profit margin for 10 years, they're going to figure out a way to take it from you. And I find that odd as a, like on one hand, I get it because they're a public company and they're always looking for ways to make more revenue and push their stock price and everything. But at the same time, like if you develop a reputation for doing that, does it hurt your chances as a platform provider? And I think with Amazon at the moment, the answer is no, but longer term, 10, 20 years down the road, is that going to hurt them? I don't know the answer to that. I think it depends a lot on specifics of which platform and kind of what it does. That makes sense. It depends on are you are you so big that it doesn't matter. And obviously, Twitter was not, right? Twitter hasn't figured out. I mean, they're struggling. Amazon may be. They may be big enough that it doesn't matter. Salesforce sucks. I never try to integrate with them. It's, it's a nine-month process. They try to charge you a bunch of money to, to just to integrate with. It's insane. Everyone whom I've spoke to, all the SaaS vendors, except for maybe one, got months into the process and eventually just gave up and put their hands up and said, like, people had invested hundreds of hours, built the whole thing, and then just walked away from it. So they're an example of, but they're still successful. So they are big enough that they can kind of do what they want. So I think it goes both ways, you know. Mm -hmm. So I guess the, the question for the people listening to this is like, you know, what what do you do when you get to that point? And I think the your thinking is definitely sell out as quickly as possible and get out. And that's I think that's a risk. That's a basic risk profile. Like, you're not comfortable with the risk. and Right, mitigation. Yep, totally. And here's the thing. These are great. You know, you think of WordPress plugins, Microsoft Office add-ons, Gmail plugins, even Salesforce add-ons, whatever. Those are great little, I mean, if you built a little lifestyle business and you, you built it for a couple hundred, you know, you get a couple hundred grand in revenue, the odds of them squashing you are pretty low. But it's as soon as you've built kind of a high six or a seven or an eight figure business and you're, you're really cranking and it's like you're hiring employees and you're growing, you know, all that stuff. That's when it's like, that's not going to last. I don't, I don't, know of many platforms that are going to let you just sit there and do that. Right. And that kind of goes to the thing I said earlier is like, you know, what happens 10 or 20 years out and if you're small enough and you're not going to grow into this massive business entity in that 10 or 20 years, or if you have no intentions of doing that, then it probably doesn't make nearly as much of a difference. But if you do have plans for that, then developing your own platform is probably a better way to go than, you know, leveraging theirs. Yeah. And that's the struggle. I mean, from both sides of it, you know, if you're building your own platform, you'll have to manage these challenges. Know that you're going to, if you get a bunch of developers or a bunch of people using or consuming or creating, you're eventually going to make someone mad. You're going to piss somebody off. You know, if you have 10,000 people, five are going to be mad at any given time, or maybe it's 500 are going to be mad. And that's probably okay. It's just people's opinion. You get groups of people and that's going to happen. But you try to do right by them and, and you try to have a long-term vision, you know, about taking care of the people who, who make you what you are. And if you're building on someone else's platform, and I think we kind of have talked that through, there are risks. It's not that you shouldn't do it. Just be aware of the risks going in. Don't, don't be naive and think that because someone offerings is offering something for free that they're not, you know, just trying to get a bunch of users and, and sell. I think the quote that sticks out from the article is, uh, for fan creators, the new status quo is all about dodging wizards hovering mallet. So they gave an example of somebody who had put something out there and it violated their, technically violated their copyright and terms of service inside of the license. But Wizards of the Coast was selling it and making 30% off of it for over a year. And then they decided, well, yeah, we don't want you doing this anymore. And then they killed it. I wonder if they decided that or if nobody had noticed. It was one of their, it was one of their top selling products. It was one of the top selling products in the marketplace. Like, how do you not notice that? Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to, I'd want to dig in. I mean, I'm not trying to defend wizards. I don't really have a, you know, they're a big company. So I, I'm not trying to say that they're in the right, but I, I'm always a little hesitant when I read things like this. It's like these stories 
it's easy to be dramatic and kind of throw stones at the big 98 pound gorilla. I would like to hear more about that. If they, if they literally were, everyone inside knew about it and they're like, oh, we're just going to make 30%. I don't think 30% on that thing made a damn bit of difference to them. I don't think that's why they were doing it. You know what I mean? I don't think Wizards was like, yeah, but we're going to make money. Let, let them infringe on our copyright. I think the fact that it sold for a year and then was taken down is pretty dang unfortunate though. You know, that, that sucks. It doesn't look good, right? Right. And I think that's the the question that people have is like, well, if, if they're going to let this go on, if you make a mistake, for example, and you create like a larger business out of it, then you start hiring employees and they don't tell you early enough on that, hey, there's been a mistake here or you're violating copyright. Like your business would not get to that point. Let's let's say he got it to $50,000 a month and he hired two or three people. And then suddenly they come in a year later and say, oh, well, this is wrong. You can't do this. And then it's just like, okay, well, now what? <laughs> right. So, so yeah, that was a good one. Thanks for uh, bringing that article in. It's always nice to discuss something a little, it's a little bit different and it's definitely a, it's more of a philosophical conversation, but I do think that it's fun to think through and fun to put into the, um, into the mindset of this goes on in a lot of different ecosystems, you know, and sometimes it's a hobby and sometimes it's, it's business and it's startups. And, and what does that look like from both sides? And what are, what are some things you should be aware of? as you as you kind of plan for what you're building. And with that, I think we're wrapped up for the day. If you have a question for us, call our voicemail number, 888-801-9690, or email us at questions at startupsoftherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsoftherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.